Yeah, so we're gonna be, today we're gonna be spending some time uh, doing a bit more of like a Bible study kind of sermon, which, you know, hopefully you're okay with. Uh, if you're not, deal with it. You're stuck here. I got a microphone. Um, if you leave, it'll be awkward. So, um, but hopefully we're expecting some Bible study. I mean, it is church. Uh, you showed up here today. Uh, but we're gonna be spending a lot of time kind of comparing and contrasting two different passages of the Bible today with Hosea and the prodigal son. We'll be digging in a little bit deeper to that, which actually, weirdly enough, because it's gonna be such a Bible study heavy day, it's gonna be a little bit further down the line before we actually get to reading some passages because we have some tools and some context we're gonna add in there. Uh, but I promise we'll get there and I promise the Bible is central to everything that we're talking about today. Um, but I, uh, I've noticed, um, it seems interesting to me, I should say, that sometimes when we feel hurt or rejected by someone, uh, we respond by like saying to them to their face or maybe like angrily in our head to their face, even though not actually to their face. Uh, we respond sometimes by saying, I don't need you. Um, in particular, what I think is interesting about that is that it seems to me that the less true that statement is, the more likely we are to use it in response or defending ourselves uh, from the hurt or rejection that we receive from someone, right? Like no one ever said to a stranger, I don't need you. Why? Because you don't need them and you know it and they know it. It's obvious and you're just gonna move along after they offended you and who cares, right? But when the person who hurts you or who rejects you is really close to you, maybe when the person who hurts or rejects you is even your own father, the likelihood of you responding by saying, I don't need you, goes up significantly, doesn't it? And so much so that there are some people who have been so deeply hurt, so deeply rejected, maybe even fully abandoned by maybe even their own dad, that they spend the rest of their life, it seems, screaming at the top of their lungs, I don't need you. Why? Because they really do need you. And we live in a world uh, where every single one of us has a father, right? Whether you realize it or not. I mean, it's obvious. You have a father. You came into this world because you had a dad. Every single one of us has a father. And every single one of our fathers is broken because they're all human beings. And so every single one of us, some to greater extent than others, but nonetheless, every single one of us have experienced some hurt and maybe even some rejection from our fathers. And because of that, we live in a world that has a voice constantly crying out, I don't need a father. Why? Because we really need a dad. We really do. It is absolutely vital for our, for our growing, for our maturing, for our strengthening. Dads are the ones who give us strength. Dads are the ones who strengthen us. Dads are the ones who challenge us. They're the ones who call us into adventure. And they're the ones who walk with us in that adventure and help us to learn uh, the difference between the good kind of danger and the bad kind of danger, right? The kind of danger that can grow us and strengthen us and mature us, the kind of danger that brings opportunity and great and beautiful and powerful things versus the kind of danger that can cripple us, that can harm us, that can leave us in tragic and sorrow situations with death for ourselves or pain for those around us, right? And fathers are the ones who walk with us in the midst of that danger, mitigating the danger so it's not the kind of thing that, that cripples us. It's not the kind of thing that takes our life. It's the kind of thing that actually can help us if, if the father is walking with us, right? And fathers are the one that when we fail, right? And when we, when we do something sinful or we just drop the ball, right? And we're shamed. Fathers are the ones who come in and they carry that weight for us. Fathers are the ones that carry the weight that we can't carry, and we all desperately need a father, right? We need a father just to exist in the world. Like not a single person in this room came into existence without a father who was also a progenitor who offered you half of who they are so that you could come into being. But our, our need for a, for a father, it doesn't end at 
conception, does it? Right, everybody knows that mom is the star of the show when, with infants, right? Like we just had a, a kid five months ago. That's why he's five months old. He's pretty awesome. But my wife for nine months, right, she was doing all of it, right? I was just sitting back like, hey, good job. You know, like he's growing inside of her body and she's doing all this extra work. And then when like it came for him to come out, came that time, like I didn't, I, I just was like, hey, you want some water? Like there's, there's nothing I can do. Mom is the star. Of the, and, then, and then he shows up, right? And she continues to be the star of the show, right? She's the only heartbeat he recognizes, right? Her body is the only one that is specifically designed to give him exactly what he needs. She is the most familiar place in the world to him. So we know moms are the star of the show in infancy, but did you know how vital dads are in infancy? Did you know that children who are born into a fatherless home are four times more likely to die in the first 28 days if dad isn't around. Four times more likely. That, and, and in those days, right, in those 28 days, like dad feels like he's not doing much, right? Like you're just running around trying to pick up the load that mom can't carry because mom literally can't carry a load because she's healing, right? And she's dumping everything she has into keeping this baby alive. And there's something about dad carrying that extra weight that literally safeguards the life of a little tiny one-month-old baby, but our need for a dad doesn't end in infancy, does it? In fact, if anything, it grows as we get older, right? Did you know that children who are born and raised in fatherless homes are two times more likely to be obese? They're two times more likely to drop out of school. Young men who are raised without a father are two times more likely to end up in prison. In fact, so much so that 85% of all youths who are in prison come from fatherless homes. Young women are, who are raised in fatherless homes are significantly more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior, so much so that they are seven times more likely to become pregnant before they're an adult if they don't have a father in a home. And we could go on and list statistics like this for the rest of the day because dads are vital. This isn't to say that moms are not because they absolutely are, but dads are vital. We need healthy dads. We need good dads. We need whole dads so very, very badly. They're the ones who give us strength. They're the ones who teach us the difference between the, you know, the good kind of danger and the bad kind of danger. Without a dad, how will we know who we are? And without a dad, how will we know who we can become? What hope then for those of us who were born into this world with broken dads? If a good dad is so important. And perhaps more grave of a question, what hope then for those of us who are broken dads? Who know there are these weights that we need to carry that we sometimes can't carry or we sometimes just fail to carry. What hope then for us? Well, I wanna come back to answer those questions a little bit later, but before we do that, I wanna spend some time studying the Bible because I think when we have these really like grievous, sad, hopeless questions, I think the Bible is a good place to start looking for answers for that. I think uh, and really the good place to find those answers. I think when we find ourselves in situations where there's a brokenness that we see in the world, the Bible is a good place to look to see how God plans to fix that. And so we're gonna spend some time studying the Bible, but before that, again, hang with me because I wanna add some context for us. I want us to understand some, some things. I wanna give you guys some tools to understand the Bible more fully and to really squeeze out more of what God is wanting to say to you as you study the word of God. Um, and so the first thing I wanna do is I wanna talk about uh, what Tim Mackey with the Bible Project calls hyperlinking in the Bible. Uh, I, th I think it's possible that maybe almost every single page of the Bible contains what Tim Mackey would call hyperlinking, contains these parallels that are connecting this passage with that passage. Uh, one of the ways that paralleling, uh, that these hyperlinkings happen in the Bible is what's called Hebrew parallelism. It's a poetic or a literary device that we find in Hebrew liter literature. Um, so many, so many lilala words. 
that we find in Hebrew literature. Like you'll see it oftentimes in the, in the Psalms. You'll see it in some of the narrative as well. But Hebrew parallelism is when the author uh, uses some imagery in one verse that is connected to or similar to the imagery in another verse, right? So they're talking about a tree down here and they're talking about a tree up here. And they do this on purpose to clue you into the fact that these two verses are connected. And so if you read this verse in light of this verse and this one in light of that one, then actually they're both illuminating each other and adding to the meaning in your understanding as you meditate on the similarities and the differences between the two of them. Um, and this kind of paralleling st- spans outward from what we even call Hebrew parallelism into just illusion and connection and similar imagery all throughout. It can stretch from different books of the Bible. It even stretches very frequently from the Old and the New Testament and back again. A really good example of this uh, would be uh, John 1 and Genesis 1, right? In John 1, uh, the gospel begins off by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he is connecting, he is paralleling, he is uh, hyperlinking back to Genesis chapter one that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, da, 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 and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And John is telling us, hey, look at Genesis one. And, t- and he's telling us that that word when God spoke, that that word was Jesus. And he's telling us, and then Genesis 1 is casting forward to this, and we see that oh, actually that word when God spoke, it eventually would be made manifest, would be made flesh, And it was Jesus. And so we read these two passages in light of one another and we learn so much. Look for this kind of stuff when you read the Bible. It's it's mind-blowing. And Jesus engages in this hyperlinking um, a lot. Uh, Specifically today, we're gonna talk about the fact that he engages in hyperlinking back to the book of Hosea, which we're studying right now in this series. He, He hyperlinks back to Hosea every time that the Pharisees are upset with him because he's been spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, the phrase you'll see is tax collectors and sinners, um, but the Pharisees, they're just using a euphemism for prostitutes when they say, when when it references that. Um, And so every time that that they are upset with him about that, he hyperlinks back to Hosea. In Matthew chapter nine, uh, when they're upset with him about that, he actually directly quotes the book of Hosea, which makes sense because Hosea is a story about a guy that God called to go and pursue a prostitute. You could see why it would be on Jesus's mind. So in Matthew nine, he actually quotes Hosea chapter six, verse six back to them in response when they're upset with him about this. And then he alludes to, he hyperlinks to Hosea 6, 1 through 3, uh, which is the, the, the passage that Ryan read last week, and he called it like the cheat code to the book of Hosea, right? Like the, like the central verse that gives us the theme of the book of Hosea. And it says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has broken us that he may heal us. And Jesus alludes to this as he says, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And two and three are actually a a prophecy of Jesus being dead and resurrected on the third day. Absolutely mind-blowing. Maybe someone might get into that later on in the series. It's really powerful. Um, But in... uh Luke 15, this happens again. The, tax collect- or the, the, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. Um, and so that brings us to, oh, sorry, I've got the wrong notes open. Um, in Luke 15, verses one through two, it says this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, what's their deal? Why are they so upset about who Jesus is hanging out with? Why does it matter to them who he has dinner with? 
Well, I think to answer that, that brings us to kind of the second thing that I really wanna give you as a tool for understanding the Bible. Uh, See, the Pharisees and Jesus are living in and writing in uh, what's called an honor-shame culture. In fact, the entire Bible is written and addressed to uh, primarily honor shame cultures. Um, now, if you don't know what that is, that's all right. I could, I'm, I love this stuff. I could nerd out and talk about honor shame cultures and guilt innocent cultures for like three hours, but I'll spare you that, and we'll just talk about the most relevant stuff today, right? So, if you've never heard that phrase before, to just summarize, an honor shame culture is a culture in which people bear with them a sensitivity to the reality, uh, an especially acute sensitivity to the reality that in every social interaction there is the potential to gain honor or shame. Uh, In our culture, uh, we identify primarily by what makes us unique and what makes us different, right? I am me because of how I'm different from you, right? So it's like my job, it's my hair. I mean, my hair especially makes me a little bit unique for most of the people in the room, right? Right? It's the things that I like, the things that I don't like. It's the things that I do, the things that I don't do. All the things that make me different are the things that make me me. That's like, you're like, duh, of course that's what makes you you. That's because we live not in an honor-shame culture, but uh, in a guilt-innocence that tends to be more individualistic. Um, In an honor-shame culture... Um, which is more collectivist, uh, people identify primarily actually by what connects them with other people, right? So it's not the things that are different about me, it's the things that are similar between you and me, right? So the things that I identify with in an honor-shame culture would be like the village that I was born in and all the people there. It would be my family, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, my grandma, my grandpa, every single person with whom I'm connected with. Uh, it would be the people in the church that you go to. It would be the people that you, uh, that you work with. It would be the village that you live in or the community that you're a part of. All of these people and who they are creates a composite that is the primary, the primary source of your identity in an honor-shame culture. And what that means is that in honor-shame cultures, honor and shame are very sticky, right? Because if someone with whom I'm connected does something that's honorable because my identity is somewhat intertwined with theirs, I receive a splashing of their honor, don't I? And as someone with whom I'm affiliated, with whom I'm associated, does something shameful because my identity is wrapped up in them a little bit, I receive some shame. And this is what's happening right here, why the Pharisees are so upset. Because at this particular moment in the history of Israel, something unique is happening. Rome is having cultural as well as economic as well as governmental authority and influence over the people of Israel. And it's beginning to affect some of the Jewish people. Right, and so Rome is actually known for having these really nasty, shameful parties. Right, All of Roman culture is pretty objectively shameful, and certainly to the Jews. So they would have these parties where they would eat and eat and eat until they vomited, and they would continue to eat and eat and eat until they vomited again. They would do this over and over and over again, and they would have prostitutes at the party walking around doing what prostitutes do at parties. And now you have these tax collectors who are Jewish people who are hanging out with the Romans. They're making money on behalf of the Romans. They're getting pretty wealthy and they're wanting to impress their Roman wealthy friends every once in a while. So they'll throw a big party in a somewhat similar to the Roman fashion and they would have prostitutes that they would hire who would be at the parties doing what, what prostitutes do at parties. Right? And, and you can see how, what a problem this is for the Israelites, for the Hebrews, right? Because these tax collectors and many of these prostitutes, they're Jewish people. They're connected with them. So it's bringing shame on all of Israel. It's bringing shame on the Pharisees. And so if you are in an honor-shame culture and someone with whom you're connected is doing something shameful, you have two strategies that you're gonna implement to try to reduce your shame. The first is you're gonna distance yourself from them as much as possible. You're gonna reject them. You're gonna disown them. You're gonna say, I don't know that person. You're gonna marginalize them. 
And we actually have some context for that in our culture. We do understand honor shame a little bit in our culture. Uh, and, and if you've ever been like out in public, maybe at a theme park or something like that, right? There's a lot of people around and you're with that one friend, you know that one friend, and they're doing something loud and obnoxious and rude and embarrassing. And, and you know what to do with that, right? You immediately take three steps to the left and you say, I don't know that guy. Never met him before in my life. Why? Because that embarrassment is a low level of shame, right? And so the more distance you are from them, the less shame you experience. If you're walking around holding hands with that embarrassing, shameful person, everybody's looking at you the same way. The other strategy that you're gonna implement uh, is, uh, with, to deal with the shame of someone who's connected with you is you're actually gonna uh, not look at the shame. You're gonna ignore it. You're gonna, you're gonna just not focus on it, not acknowledge it. And in so doing, you actually, uh, you actually reduce shame. Shame is subjective, but it's real. And so if we don't look at it, it actually goes down. If we look at it, it actually magnifies the shame. We have some context for this. You understand this. Uh, my guess is if you've ever walked in on someone when they're pooping, you know exactly this response, right? Can pastors say poop in church? I don't know. It just happened. Um, Right, if you walk into that, you know intuitively, hopefully, exactly what to do, right? You open the door and you immediately do what? You avert your eyes and you shut the door. And then what do you do? You go out and you pretend it never happened. <laughs> and the last thing you're gonna do, like absolutely please, do not look them in the eyes, right? Like no eye contact for the rest of the week. Why? Because it just makes it worse. Like don't like when they come out, don't be like, oh, hey, I saw you, your pants were down. no. No, 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 no. No eye contact, no acknowledging. This never happened, right? We get this. Why? Because it's so much worse if you acknowledge it. And it doesn't go away, but it does make it a little better if we just pretend it never happened. And so these are the strategies that the Pharisees and all of Israel are implementing with the tax collectors and the prostitutes who are bringing shame to them. They've marginalized them. They've pushed them out. They're saying, no, those are not, I know they're Jewish, but they're not Jewish. They're not us. And then they're refusing to look at them, to acknowledge them, to speak to them. And in so doing, they're minimizing the shame that they're getting splashed on them from these individuals. But Jesus is ruining this because he's looking at these tax collectors and these prostitutes, because he's acknowledging them, because he's talking to them. He's gone to feasts at the house of tax collectors. Imagine what everybody must have thought was happening. I bet the party looked a bit different when Jesus walked in. But the shame, and, and worse than all of that, not only is Jesus eating with these tax collectors and prostitutes, some of these tax collectors and some of these prostitutes have become his disciples. They're spending time with him. They're following him. They are learning from him. This, in the eyes of the Pharisees and in the eyes of most of Israel, was incredibly shameful. And this is a problem for, for the Pharisees, particularly because Jesus, as he associates with these people, he's gaining more shame for Israel. He's gaining a lot of shame for himself by directly associating with them. And that's a problem with the Pharisees because Jesus is a religious leader and they're religious leaders. And so if he's getting shame in their eyes, they're getting shame in their eyes. And Jesus responds by telling them three stories, the third and the longest of which is a story that we call the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is in many ways a hyperlink to Hosea. It's almost a retelling of the story of Hosea. We can learn a lot by looking at the similarities and the differences between the two stories. Hosea, if you remember, Ryan kind of gave us a little bit of a, a flyover of Hosea last week. Hosea is a story of a guy named Hosea, and I think this is a story that actually happened. I don't think it's a metaphor. I think he was a real guy that God called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so he, weird name for prostitute, I know, but that was her name. 
So that's, that's her name. Uh, so he, he pursues this woman, he marries her, he brings her in and they start you know, being married people and she begins to conceive and start having kids. Now there's a lot that is said in the book of Hosea by what goes unsaid in the book of Hosea. Why? Because it, like the rest of the Bible, is a book of honor shame culture. And so Hosea, a lot of shameful things are happening in this book. So he's not gonna look directly at it. He's not gonna speak directly about it. So we read between the lines. And so Hosea uh, and Gomer, well, Gomer starts having these kids and we see that he names the kids. We, we can infer reading between the lines that she's cheating on him. Why? Because the kids are named judgment, no mercy, and not my people. And we can assume that at least the kid named not my kid probably wasn't his kid, right? And then we move on and she leaves him, but we don't actually get told that she left him. Hosea never pens the word and then she le- the words, and then she left me. Why? Because it's honor, shame. I think two reasons. I think one, because it's too painful for him to write and then she left me. That's why I believe for sure this was a real story. And also because it's honor shame. He's not gonna look directly at the shame. He's not gonna acknowledge it more than is necessary. He's just gonna give us the lines that we can read between so we can figure out what happened. Because in chapter two, she's with him. In chapter three, he's needing to go and bring her back. Right, and so we, and, and then he goes and he brings her back and he re- brings her back and he actually pays money to have her restored to him. And so we have the story of this woman who shamefully left her family for love of wealth and of pleasure and was restored in goodness. And then the prodigal son, Jesus begins the story and he says, there was a man who had two sons. And one day his younger son said to the father, I want my inheritance. Give me the money that I get when you die, but give it to me today because I want out. That is an incredibly shame. I mean, we understand that that's shameful, right? That's not done in our culture. It absolutely wasn't done in that culture. Right? And it's even more shameful than I think you and I understand, but we can understand how bad it is, right? And so the father, weirdly enough, says, sure, and he gives him his inheritance, and then the son moves to a faraway land, and we're told he spends his money on reckless living. The older brother gives us an insight that he may have spent some of that money on prostitutes. Right? And then uh, when we're told when he spends all of his money, he's out of money, a famine hits the land, and they become destitute. And so he goes from kind of paycheck to paycheck to out of money. And so he hires himself off to a citizen of that land so that he could feed uh, the citizens pigs, right? And he's hungry, he's starving, and he's thinking to himself, man, I just, can I just have the pig food? But it says no one will give him anything to eat. And so he realizes one day, it says he came, when he came to himself, he thought, Maybe I could go back and be in my father's house as a servant. I know I can't be a son, but maybe the lowly, shameful position of a servant, I can go back and do that. And so he does just that. And we're told in Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Jesus continues with a little bit more of the story. He says, they threw the party and the older son was angry that the father you know, had thrown this party for his son, but he never got a party. And the father, he, well, the older son wouldn't even go in the party. So the father goes out and, and invites the son, the older son to come back into the party and to celebrate. 
And both of these stories are, are interwoven in so many ways. Actually, as I count it, there are probably about 30 allusions in the prodigal son back to the story of Hosea. And I didn't even bother counting the ones that go from Hosea to the prodigal son because there's probably way more than that. I probably couldn't even count them. Um, they're both essentially a story of a father who is a husband and a son or wife, who shamefully leave the family for love of wealth and pleasure, and they're restored. In this story, there's kind of these three layers that we can look at of, of connection and metaphor, right? So in the prodigal son, we have the father, who is an image of Hosea, and both are an image of God the father, right? In the prodigal son, we have the younger son, who is an image of Hosea's wife, Gomer, who is an image of the northern tribes of Israel. Won't get into that, but it's so interesting. Um, and then in the prodigal son, we have uh, the older son, who is an image of the Pharisees, who are both an image of uh, the southern tribes of Judah who stayed a little bit more faithful but yet had a brokenness and a shame that they carried and didn't realize. So what, why do I, why did we just do all this? Why did I just, what's the point? Why did I compare these two? That's interesting, but why are we doing that? Um, well, I would say this, two reasons. One, I'm really hoping to equip you to squeeze so much more out of this than I could possibly give you in 30 minutes on a Sunday. A little more than 30 minutes. Sorry, dads. Um, there's way more in this than I could possibly do on Sunday. So I'm hoping you will read the book of Hosea over and over and over again, especially as we're studying it this summer. And I'm hoping you'll read the prodigal son and the other times where Jesus responds as the Pharisees are mad because he's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. I'm hoping you'll read those passages over and over and over again and read them in light of one another and meditate on them and study them and ask the Lord to reveal and speak to you through those things, through the similarities and through the differences, both of which are very intentional. And I'm hoping that God will say so many things to you through that. In fact, I'm pretty confident that he will. I think we could spend the rest of our lives studying and meditating on only these passages because these passages contain in them the gospel in a really powerful and unique way. And they're rich, as is pretty much every page of the Bible. And so I'm hoping to give you that, but also I'm hoping to just zoom in on one little parallel between the two stories. I wanna zoom in on the father's response when the son returns and on Hosea's pursuit of his wife. Um, when the son returns uh, and Jesus tells this story, there are some characters that, that we miss out on that Jesus doesn't explicitly mention that would have been very obvious to anybody in an honor shame culture. You and I, this kind of goes over ahead because we just live in a bit of a different culture, but it would have gone unsaid and it would have been obvious. Uh, the people that are not mentioned in the story that would have been obvious is the rest of the community and especially even the village elders, right? In any honor, shame culture, just about, if a son had done something like what this son did and left the family in the way he did, when he returned, the village elders would have actually intervened before he got anywhere near his dad. And they would have made very clear to him that he has nothing to do with them. They would have done that first strategy. They would have pushed him away and shoved him out and said, how dare you return to this community? You have no right. You've been excommunicated. You've been cast out. We have nothing to do with you. Get out. Why? Because it's their job as the elders to insulate themselves and the community and the father and his household from the shame of this son. And if the son had managed to wiggle his way around the village elders and get to his father, it would have been expected that the father would have done that. that the father would have said, you are not my son. What are you doing here? You left, get out of here. We have nothing to do with you. Why? Because the father needs to insulate himself and his family and his community and the village elders from the shame of this son. But that's not what happens in this story, is it? The father runs and he meets the son. And the father puts over him a robe and puts a ring on his finger. 
And he throws a party in celebration to tell the entire community, this is my son, he's returned, and I'm excited. And this is a contrast here. If we look in Hosea uh, chapters uh, two, verses nine through 10, and 13 and skipping around a little bit for the sake of brevity. It says, therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its seasons. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I will punish her for the feast of the Baals when she had burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Right, so in the book of Hosea, what's happening is the Lord is taking from Israel the wool and the flax, the robe that covers, the ring off her finger, removing the feast. But in the father's love, in the story of the prodigal son, what happens? The father is restoring these things. He's covering his son. And in, in Hosea uh, chapter three, verse five, it says, uh, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days, just as the prodigal son returned in fear but encountered the goodness of the Father. And so as we see this, the differences and the similarities here, we realize something so powerful, right? When the Son returned and when the Father ran out to meet him, right, he ran out to get there before anybody else could get there. He intervened between his Son and the village elders, and so when the father did this in the eyes of the elders and the whole community, what the father was doing was shameful. He did not do what he was supposed to do. The father didn't simply delete or erase his son's shame. The father took that shame on himself. And now the whole community looks at the father and sees the shame of that, but can't look past that to the shame of what the son had done. And this is exactly what Hosea does with Gomer, isn't it? He doesn't delete her shame. He actually puts it on himself. See, Gomer was a prostitute. And Hosea, when he married her, two things happened, right? Like, like the weight of a prostitute is significant. The shame of a prostitute, I probably don't need to convince you, is the kind of shame that follows you and is inescapable. For the rest of her life, she will be a prostitute. But what does Hosea do? He marries her. And when he does that, two things happen. One, he elevates her from being a prostitute to being a legitimate wife. And in that same action, he lowers himself from being just a guy, in fact, from being a prophet to being the guy who married a prostitute, right? And then she runs around on him. She cheats on him, right? And she has these other kids with these other men. And what does he do? Does he ignore it? No, he doesn't. He actually looks at it like you're not supposed to. He names these children, tagging them with an awareness of, of the shameful thing, but he doesn't leave them. He actually raises them as his own and he doesn't reject them. He doesn't push them away. He doesn't push Gomer away. He doesn't insulate them himself from the shame. He gets right up in there and covers her shame and their shame. And then when she leaves him, clearly what he should have done would have been to say, what are you like? You know, you're not leaving me. I'm divorcing you. I want nothing to do with you. He should have screamed loudly. So the whole community heard it and knew that it was her who was shameful and that he was distancing himself from her shame. But that's not what he does, is it? He goes and he finds her and he pays money to bring his wife home. I mean, imagine, just imagine if you had a friend who did what Hosea did the shame that you would look on him with. You would say, you fool, why are you marrying a prostitute? And then of course she's gonna cheat on you. And then she cheats on him. And then you think, well, yeah, of course she cheated on you. What are you doing? Get rid of her. Those aren't your kids. You don't need to raise those kids. Why are you raising those kids? And then she leaves and it's like, well, of course she left you. 
You fool, why would you go get her? What an idiot, what a beta, what, like she's, what a little puppy. She's got you wrapped around your finger. Just imagine how shameful you would look on that friend if he was doing this. But Hosea takes this weight of her shame on himself and he says, that's okay. The world around us can look on me with this shame, but they won't see you with the shame. And this is what our father does for us. If when we just return, come, let us return to the Lord. He has broken us that he may heal us. When we just begin to return, he runs and he meets us. Before anyone can intervene, before anyone can cast their shame on us, he meets us there and he casts a robe over us. He puts a ring on our finger and he throws a party to tell the entire community, this is my child. You're not gonna look on them with shame. If you have shame to cast, cast it on me. And he carries that weight for us. And if we are sick and engrossed in, in, in our love of wealth and of pleasure, and if we have been sleeping around and engaging in adultery and doing all sorts of fornication and things that are just full of shame, he comes and he meets us and he says, let me make you my wife. Let me redeem you. And everybody can look at you as someone legitimate and they can look at me with shame if they want to. See, Jesus, he, he, he paid for our guilt, absolutely. But he also carries our shame. He didn't just delete our shame. He didn't just erase it. He carries it. And this is what a father does. A father carries the weight that his family cannot carry. When the load is too much, a father is meant to pick it up and to carry it. When the shame is too much, the father is meant to carry it with the strength of his honor. I have a, like I said, I have a five-month-old Silas. He's really cool. Um, it's my first time being a dad. And, um, and, and at this point, five months old, one of my favorite things to do with him uh, is to help him figure out how to stand up, right? And so what do I do? I, I pick him up by his torso and I put him down on his feet in front of the couch where it's nice and safe in case he falls or whatever. And I put his tiny little hands on the cushion, right? And then, and then he's, he's a little wiggly and I pull, my, I pull my, feet, my hands like maybe about a half an inch away from his body and his legs get all wiggly and he stands there for, you know, maybe a couple seconds and he's kind of doing this, right? And then invariably like he begins to fall and what do I do? I move my hands back in and I grab him by the torso. And then I set him back up right again and I pull my hands away and he starts wiggling again, you know, and as soon as he begins to fall and I put him up, right? And we do this over and over and over again until his tiny little legs are exhausted until he can't bear the weight of his own load any longer. And what do I do then? I pick him up in my hands and I carry the weight for him because this is what I was made to do as a father. Fathers carry the weight that their children, that their family can't carry. That's at least what we're supposed to do. And that brings us back to that question at the beginning, what hope then for us whose fathers are broken, whose fathers couldn't carry their own weight, much less ours, whose fathers, fathers sometimes were too selfish to see that we needed them to pick us up, were too selfish or too unaware or too distracted to realize that we needed them to right us and get us stable again or whose arms just were failing and they couldn't carry the weight of themselves, much less ours. What hope then for us? Our hope is this. We have a heavenly father who is not weak and he is not broken. When our shame is too much for our earthly fathers, when our earthly fathers don't have enough honor to carry the weight of our shame, our heavenly father has more than enough honor. And if we would return to him, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has broken us that he may heal us. 
as Jesus said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. If we would return to the Lord, he will run and he will meet us. He will intervene between us and anyone who would look on us with shame. And he will say, don't look on Micah with shame, look on me with that shame if you want to. And when, when life is just too much, and when our legs fail beneath us, he picks us up and he carries us. This is our hope. And if that's you, if the load is too much, if the shame is too much, if there's more than you can handle, all you gotta do is go to the Father and say, God, this is too much. I'm not strong enough and I need my dad. What hope then for those of us who are broken dads? What hope then for those of us who see how much we need to carry the weight for our children, for our wives, for our brothers and sisters, that we have a load that we were meant to carry for our family, but we can't. Well, I wanna to speak to all of the men in the room, not, not just the ones who have children of their own right now. Because I really believe that every single man in this room is called to be a father, even if you have no kids of your own, even if you are called to the high and holy and powerful and beautiful and mighty calling of singleness for this season of your life or for the rest of your life. Regardless, I believe that you are called to be a father. Perhaps the father of your biological children, absolutely the father of spiritual children. And you are called to carry weights that other people that God has given you cannot carry. And you are called to step between them and those who look on them with shame and to say, cast your shame on me. But you're broken. I've been a father for five months and I've already hit the edge and gone past my capacity to carry extra loads. It doesn't take long as a dad to realize I'm broken and I can't do what I'm made to do. Certainly not perfectly. What hope then for those of us who are broken fathers? Our hope is this, we have a father. When the load is more than we can carry, when the shame is more than our honor can bear, we can go to our father and we can say, daddy, I'm trying to be a good dad but I don't have the strength and I don't have enough honor. Will you, will you take it for me? Will you carry this for my family? And we can go to our family and we can make sure that they know that they have a father who fills in where we fail. We can tell our children, we can tell our wives, we can tell our brothers and sisters and our whole family, hey, I know that I'm supposed to carry these weights and I'm doing my best, but I am broken. And sometimes I fail on purpose and sometimes I fail and I don't even realize it. But when I fail, you can go to the heavenly father and he will carry what I have failed to carry and he will bear what I have failed to bear. This is our hope. We're gonna take communion. Um, and this is exactly the thing. The thing that we remember in communion is exactly the thing that Hosea and the prodigal son were looking forward towards, that they were pointing towards. If you are one of the people in the room who feels like you have a weight or you have shame that is more than you can carry, if you feel like a little five-month-old kid whose legs are weak and wobbly and they're exhausted and you can no longer carry the weight of yourself, the weight of the burdens of your life or the weight of the shame of your failures, if that's you, or perhaps if you're the dad who says, I, 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 I don't, I'm trying and I'm failing, or I know that there will be a moment where there is a weight that my children have, that my wife has, that my family has. I know that there is a moment where there is a weight that I am meant to carry that I will not be able to carry. If you're one of those two people, would you get on your knees with me? Um, 
Because right now is a moment for us to return to the Lord, to come to the Father. And as we remember, let's do just that. Let's return to the Lord. He has broken us that he will heal us. You take the bread, you remember that this is, this is what Jesus did, that this is the moment when Jesus bore our shame, right? Jesus, God himself, was shamed not to erase our shame, but to carry it, right? So he was stripped, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was bruised. He was paraded through the city, naked and bloody. And then he was hung on a tree, crucified as a criminal, though he was not one. Why? Well, he was paying for our sin and he was carrying our shame. And so as we break this bread, Remember that he was broken so that we would be healed. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has broken us that he may heal us. After two days, he will raise us up. On the third day, he will revive us. So let's take this body and remember how he was broken to carry our shame. And as we take this cup, we remember that our shame was poured out on him so that his blood could be poured out on us. That he bore our shame so that we wouldn't have to because he is a good father and it was too heavy for us and he knew it. And it's so beautiful that in this moment when he bore our shame, where he was shamed for us, those of us who know him as a good father, we look on him and we see what great glory and what great honor it's brought to his name, that he bore our shame. And so let us remember him and honor him for carrying our shame as we take the cup. Lord Jesus, you are so much more than we could ask for. We are the son who knows that we can't return and ask to be a son. And we come back asking for a lowly position as a slave, but you run to meet us. You cover us with a ring and a robe. You throw a party. And you let the world know that you're not ashamed of us. You associate it with us. You tie yourself to us. And if we were tax collectors, if we were prostitutes, no matter what we have done, Lord Jesus, this isn't just a metaphor, this is a reality. That you are carrying our shame, that your honor is strong enough to do that, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We remember your body, we remember your blood, we remember your sacrifice. And we love you, Jesus. We come, we come to you in fear, knowing that what we will find is the goodness of the Father. Amen.